Hello and welcome to the After Dinner Podcast. My name is Jay Swords. This is the podcast extension for show 550 of ROI. Our guest for today is Dr. Levi Roach, Associate Professor of Medieval History at the University of Exeter. We're going to be talking about his book, Empires of the Normans, Conquerors of Europe. Our history buffs today are Rick Sweet and Terry Toppler. Terry, start us off. All right, thank you. Yes, Levi, earlier we talked about um, the influence and how the Normans shaped the English language. Um, could you uh, take us through their legacy as far as literature and poetry? Yes, is the short answer, but I wonder, do you mean that linguistically in terms of impact or just in terms of the poetry and literature more generally that's generated? More generally, more generally. I'm thinking Beowulf and et cetera. So, sorry, you're thinking? Uh, I'm thinking of literature. I'm thinking of their prose, hymns. What influence did they have? Yeah, so well, one of the most obvious ones of this, at least that some of your listeners might have heard of and might associate with the Middle Ages, is Arthurian literature. So if we think of all those legends of Arthur, his Knights of the Round Table, and so on, crucially, this is based on a figure who, if he was historical, and we're not sure how historical he was, but would have been living in Britain in the kind of 5th or early 6th century, so just after the fall of Rome. He wouldn't have been a knight. He wouldn't have been anything like any of those legends. But crucially, those legends come at a time when we get a kind of a confluence of chivalric ethos um, and francophone literature, French-speaking literature about chivalry and chivalric deeds of daring do, combining with these British traditions of this great figure of Arthur. And it creates this blend so that the Arthur of legends of Excalibur and of the search for the Holy Grail and so on, that Arthur is very much reflecting European cultural mores of the 12th and 13th centuries. And that is created because, and only really because, we have a Francophone elite in Britain where there are these previous earlier traditions about Arthur. And so it's those two coming together that gives us one of the most lasting kind of medieval legends, but also the wider literature, Chrétien de Troyes and so on, that, that underpins it. So some of the really great works of medieval literature are produced in French, but out of a French-speaking milieu in the British Isles. And Levi, I'm just going to add in for our listeners, and there are Welsh in particular and Cornish uh, mythologies dealing with Arthur that you can get your hands on fairly easily, and they are very different than the ones that you see in Mort to Arthur and so forth and so on. So if you want to get a sense of, of just how important cultural differences can be working with the same basic material, that is a great place to look, is to look at the way Arthur is dealt with in different cultures. Yes, precisely. And indeed, it only gets into even the Norman canon because the Normans have not only conquered England, but also large parts of Wales. So as you say, there's this native tradition regarding these individuals, which is very lively, very interesting, but really quite distinct. And as it moves into Latin and then further on into then the Francophone, the French-speaking um, vernacular, so Old French, it then takes on lease of life, if you will, and it's really almost completely reimagined as a reflection of or an idealized reflection of aristocratic culture of the 13th century. Rick. Levi, uh, you mentioned in the broadcast portion that there are certain areas the Normans tried to uh, conquer or colonize uh, did not become Norman. Uh, I think you mentioned North Africa and 
Italy, there might be a, a maybe Iberia. I'm not too sure. Why did they these areas not become Norman, where other areas did become Normanish, if you will? I think there's two factors at play in almost all of those. There's one which is the balance of probability. So all of those were slightly riskier ventures that could easily go awry and then did. But then there is genuinely the factor that we were also mentioning earlier of luck that comes into these things, even in the case of the conquest of England, hugely well planned. It's a very close run thing at the Battle of Hastings. Things turn out slightly differently, and William does not conquer England at all. Um, And particularly in the case of then these other ones, southern Italy is a place where there's not a very large number of Normans who set up shop there. And they're very fortunate that when they do so, the political scene there is very fragmented. So in a sense, it it helps them establish themselves and edge out potential opponents who aren't much larger than them, or indeed sometimes even smaller in terms of their political power and horizons. Whereas in some of those other regions, they run up against bigger players or have worse luck. So when they're fighting in the Balkans or in Asia Minor against the Byzantines and setting up domains there, that was always a bit of a stretch. Had they had been a bit luckier, it's entirely plausible that they could have had greater success, but it was always a bit unlikely that they were going to be successful against the Byzantine emperors. In Iberia, again, they're slightly out on a limb, a bit like in the start in southern Italy, but crucially that when they start setting up a couple of proto-polities, both of those are snuffed out quite early on. But as I said, I don't think that's inevitable. I think all of those ventures could have been successful, just as hypothetically speaking, the Norman attempts to conquer southern Italy, which ultimately were successful, could easily at multiple stages have backfired. So there is a significant element of luck as well as uh, other factors. And the other factors typically being how many Normans are there and what is the political scene where they're, in, into which they are arriving. Levi, I want to focus on north, on on southern Italy for a moment, and because I just spent uh, a summer, uh, part of a summer in in Italy, uh, vacationing, and uh, got to see some of the uh, the north the Norman uh, influences there, and I was fascinated by both the appreciation and some of the sort of undercurrent discrimination. Um, that was part of that process. There are def- there's definitely sort of an, an edge when particularly non-Southern Italians talk about those blonde, blue-eyed uh, Sicilians, um, you know, and it, it's just, I find it fascinating. So how did the Normans sort of blend in? Because the, the, the impact that I could see both culturally and, and in terms of architecture was still fairly prominent. I mean, it wasn't wiped out or or glossed over, and the Italians themselves are still very much aware of that influence in a way that I think some of the Northern Europeans aren't anymore. Yes, I think you're right. I think that Southern Italians see the Normans as part of their heritage, whereas Northern Europeans and Americans and Canadians probably don't normally associate Normans with the region at all. But as you say, they have a quite distinctive mark there. And one of the reasons is that the Normans in southern Italy and Sicily are always a small aristocratic elite and never even the majority of the aristocracy. So they kind of have to work with the grain from day one. And this means working with people whose native language is a kind of early Italian, so the local Lombards. It means working with people who are speaking Greek. Significant parts of this have been part of the Byzantine Empire for hundreds of years. So the parts of southern Italy have, since the ancient, since antiquity, spoken Greek, not, you know, a version of Latin that becomes Italian. 
So there's Greek speakers. And then crucially in Sicily, there's a significant population who are Arabic speaking, because that has been under Islamic hands, and there's a significant Muslim population. And in those early years, their approach is very much a pragmatic one. They're not rocking the boat. Where possible, they are preferring speakers of uh, uh, Latin within the church, right? So what we consider a Catholic rather than Orthodox faith, um, a fellow Francophone aristocrats, where possible, they're putting in positions of power and authority, but they're leaving lots of native Italians, Italian speakers, they're leaving lots of Greek speakers, they have leading advisors who are Greek, who are um, Arabic speakers. The Arabic speakers have to, to move into court circles, be converts, but there are some leading advisors who had been who are Arab natives, Arabic native speakers who have been raised Muslims who are moving in those circles. So it's classically seen and modernized almost as being this kind of wonderful, multicultural, multi-ethnic kingdom. It isn't that, at least not in a modern sense. None of these rulers are being consciously multicultural. What they are being is pragmatically tolerant. And what's notable is in the following couple hundred years, a much sharper edge slowly comes in and by the 13th century, we start seeing expulsions of remaining Muslim populations. And so what starts off as quite laissez-faire and quite tolerant, um, uh, and often kind of praised by modern scholars, moves towards something that is eventually very repressive. So what it is, is that once culture, society, and politics has changed sufficiently, that those groups are firmly on the margins and on our small minority, then a squeeze does really start to set in. But it is only a couple of centuries after initial conquest. So for a, a long period of time, the early rulers like Roger I and Roger II are very pragmatic. They, they, they prefer fellow Normans, they prefer fellow Christians when they can, but they'll happily work with Muslims, they want to do business with anybody who can help them, and they're, they're more interested in who will be a reliable ally, actually, than necessarily their language or faith. Terry. Yes, uh, Levi, we talked about the Duchy of Normandy, and I assume that's where we get the coinage, um, the word Norman law. Can you talk about uh, what aspects we might see of that in legal systems today? So that would be dependent very much on where you're placed and how you're placed. So if you're at least in the United Kingdom, the Norman impact on law is relatively superficial, actually. So we get a change in law and some of the legal systems to moving towards writing things in Latin, crucially because the Normans don't speak English. And before the conquest, there's a strong tradition of native vernacular lawmaking. So pre-conquest England, Kings issue their documents in Latin, which is more common for the rest of Europe, but they issue their laws in English. Once we move to the Norman period, there's a cessation initially on new lawmaking, but crucially, law, the language of law becomes Latin, and we get actually many of those earlier English laws are translated into Latin. So we see linguistic change and various kind of cultural changes associated with wider kind of trans-European shifts. But the bedrock of the legal system that ends up being developed in England and then exported to places like the United States, Canada, Australia, is actually more of a native law tradition than an imposition from Normandy, that Normandy has its own customary law that ends up being influenced by some English legal traditions um, and probably has some influence from, for example, Magna Carta and things like that. But they're largely treading parallel paths rather than this being something imposed by conquest. Okay, Rick. Levi, how did it all end? Uh, what what happened in the 13th century where this glorious colonizing, uh, fighting, uh, aggrandizement, uh, how and why did it end? 
Uh, I think there's two parts to the answer to that. One is that the Normans are a victim of their own success. They've colonized all these places, but now they're starting to grow apart. Uh, you might imagine this is a bit like one might suggest that the British Empire in some respects was a victim of its own success with places like the United States, that a colony that once was very close then grows apart. Uh, and so that's one of the things we get to. By the time you're moving into the 13th century, there are people who are of Norman descent doing all sorts of things all across Europe that are hugely dominant. But almost none of them are calling themselves Normans. If you're based in southern Italy, it's the kingdom of Sicily. You're not calling it a Norman kingdom because, of course, Normandy is in northern France. If you're in England, it's an English kingdom. You might be speaking French as the monarch, but you're king of England. You're a Francophone king of England. It sounds weird to modern ears, but that's what you very much are, and that's what you take pride in. And indeed, the English aristocracy is Francophone, but sees itself as English. We start having aristocrats who speak French as their first language, but who don't like the French. And indeed, there starts to be a linguistic division between England and Normandy and northern France, where the French speakers kind of look down upon the yokel English that, that, that they hear from England. They, they, they see it as kind of provincial and they laugh at it. And it becomes something of a marker of identity. And again, there is, I think, a certain analogy between transatlantic relations here, famously two nations separated by a shared language. The things that seem to keep the Normans together by the 13th century are actually starting to drive them apart. So being Norman in the 13th century isn't meaningful anymore because almost everyone is sort of Norman. But are you Scottish Norman? Are you Irish Norman? Are you Welsh Norman? Are you Italian Norman? Are you Sicilian Norman? Are you Norman Norman? All of those mean suddenly different things. So that's the, the big thing that makes it fall apart. The immediate other factor, if you're based in the British Isles, where Normandy has been politically attached to England, Wales, Scotland, and parts of Ireland for quite some time, is crucially that the French monarch successfully conquers Normandy back off of King John uh, in the early 13th century. And that conquest sticks. So then we have a Norman elite in England completely detached from Normandy, the homeland. Uh, and so any residual identification they might have had with it now starts to be reoriented. And Normans in the future will be garden variety Frenchmen rather than it being an identity that the English elites, the Scottish elites, the Southern Italian elites can all share. We would like to thank our guest for this 550th show, Dr. Levi Roach, Associate Professor of Medieval History at the University of Exeter. We've been talking about his book, Empires of the Normans, Conquerors of Europe. The history buffs for today's show were Rick Sweet and Terry Toppler. ROI can be found at 9.30 p.m. Friday nights on KALA Radio or on the web at tunein.com. If you're looking for older programs, you'll find them at SoundCloud.com. Just put KALA Radio, all one word, in the search, click on the first icon, and scroll down to find over a decade of ROI shows. You can also find ROI on all of your favorite streaming platforms. ROI is recorded at Station KALA, St. Ambrose University.